Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. And man, oh man, we got one for you this time. It is my pleasure to welcome to the studio. Oh, first, who am I? Nikki Dakota. And very glad to be here. And truly my pleasure and honor to welcome to the studio the man with the largest frame brain man, on the oh planet. Man. And also, man, he is oh a nitrate film archivist at the Library of Congress and our friend George Willeman. George, welcome. Guten Tag, Frau Nikki. <laughs> also in the studio is our very good friend and friend to all the beautiful, big, lovely, amazing stars as well, plus storyboard artist to the Cohen Brothers for 20 years and counting, and also a film guy. He is J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Der Fraulein. <laughs> we have very much German on our minds, although uh, this the movie we're reviewing today actually has English subtitles. But it yes, was, but uh, we know a little German, um, and he's friends with Bud Inski, but we won't... <laughs> <laughs> We have gathered together today to to put our perfect <laughs> eye upon the 1926 1926 German Hey, we're getting film, back there, aren't we? Metropolis. And uh, wow, it is really something to behold. And we'll get into all those reasons why. But uh, very first, before we head into this black and white silent film marvel, let's remind uh, everyone that... Uh, there are rules. There are rules that cannot be skirted, circumvented, gone around. It is stringent. It is strict. They must pass these rules. And, gentlemen, those rules are... Hey, Metropolis is a perfect film because it creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, Metropolis retains its meaning and entertainment value. And the perfect movie is never placed in any preferential numerical order. It stands perfect by its own scale. Thus we present to you one of the greatest silent movies of all time and one of the greatest movies of all time, Metropolis. It really is amazing. Directed by Fritz Lang... Lens Dubai. Carl Freund. Who went on to do amazing things, which we uh, will get to later. Or maybe we're just saying right now, maybe. that. Uh, and produced by one of the most influential studios in the world as far as style is concerned. And certainly at the time. What's it? UFA. UFA. It was like Universum Film. I can't pronounce the last word, but it means like corporation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But boy, UFA. boy, did they load us up with uh, expressionistic style you know, for cinema. But on this one, they almost uh, he almost bit the big one actually because the film was so expensive and the returns were just not enough. And what to was cover the, the budget expenses. on this film, George? Uh, you know, right offhand, I can't tell you, but it was millions of marks. And that was in 1926, which would be hundreds of millions of euros, right? Probably, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's just say it was a lot of money. A lot of money, don't you know? It was a lot more than they expected it was going to be at first. If you would be so kind, George Willeman, to give us um, an overview of the action in this movie. And again, it's a silent movie. So, I mean, there is certainly a lot of action because most of the story right. is told through gesture. And, and he's going to do it with pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first act. Oh, uh, no. The, the story takes place in the year 2026. And at this point in time, this enormous uber city has grown called Metropolis. And, and as far as a class system, we now have 
basically two classes. You have the upper class, those who run the city and own the city and their, their children, and you have the workers. And the workers live underground, and they basically spend the day running the enormous machinery that is required to keep the city upstairs going. Now, wait a minute. Stop the music. We must clarify this. Keep in mind, this is Germany in the middle 1920s. This is before the Third Reich had any influence as we know it. The, the Third Reich became uh, very prominent uh, probably about 10 years later. But this is still the roaring Berlin that uh, right. Well, this is this also is a different Germany than we are all told about. This is a much different Germany. Right. This is also Germany that was coming out of a, a dreadful uh, depression uh, that started right after the end of World War One. So it's between the wars between and with the wars this and sort of the results of you know how Germany was treated by the League of Nations and sort of you know a lot down. of a lot of aspiring artists are coming out of this era in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that some of you are saying, oh, you always think Germany, Nazi, History Channel, and stuff like that. But this is before. This is before. Sorry to interrupt you, George. That's okay. Um, where was I? Oh, it, it's 2000 or 2026. And um, there's one man in particular who is kind of singled out in this film. And he is the son of, of the leader of Metropolis. The leader's name is Jo Frederson. And his son is named Freder Frederson. <laughs> and, and Freder is just basically just kind of piddles his days away in the Garden of Eternal Delights. You At know, Freder Joe's. Romping, <laughs> <laughs> romping around with these scantily clad women in funny hats. And they are fixins yeah. of their time, I'll tell you. Well, and on one particular day, this, this very beautiful, although somewhat plain-looking girl appears in the garden with all these little urchin children and tells Freder, these are your brothers and sisters. You know, and, and he's... You know, smitten by her, but he's also wondering what's going on. So he goes down underground to to find out to find her and to find out what she's talking about. And the first thing that happens to him when he gets underground, he witnesses a horrible industrial accident where several men are maimed or killed. You're not really clued in on that. And he goes back to his father and tries to tell him about this. And his father is just livid that he was allowed to go down there and basically forbids him from ever going back. But and also there's a hierarchy that's reflected in, in how high or low your work and or life is, is done in the city. Like the beautiful people live way at, the up top. at the top. They live at the tops of the buildings. And they, they benefit from the labor. And the whole city is a mechanical entity. Mm -hmm. And it's just driven only by this, this these it's, poor It's kind of like a big steam plant in the middle of the earth. Yeah. You know, making sure everybody can wear nice clothes and... Uh, you know, gallivant around and impress people with their, um, you know, they, they, I'm sure if they had a film like we perfect back then, they were <laughs> talking about that at all their, their big shot parties, don't you think? <laughs> right, well, yeah, and they, have, I mean, yeah, the, the people up in the studio, they have things like television yes. and airships and, yeah. you know, and all these fancy, and, the, and there's a huge part of the city called Yoshiwara, uh, that is basically the big fancy red light district of Metropolis that all the, the sons dally about in. Um, but Freighter is, is horrified about what he sees. And he has to go back. He goes back, and he actually trades places with one of the workers to work the machines. And, and long to get his one of his points across, the work in the workers' part of the city is just the most menial tasks. They are mechanical. The, the people in some of the scenes are almost choreographed. They look like parts of the machine, and they're very mechanical motions as they're doing there's one their jobs. there's one guy that stands in front of this clock-like apparatus that uh, moves in this synchronous kind of movement and he's controlling 
their patterns and their movement. He's like the computer brain of the it's whole. It's so interesting because they couldn't really have seen robotics, you know. So they, at least in this this visioning, that this all of this the, still required humans. This is the industrial age coming on strong in about 1926, and it's reflected in this movie in a big, big way. Well, it's interesting. In the 20s, there was a lot of talk, beginning talk of robots and mechanical men. Uh, and in fact, uh, Carol Kapek had written this uh, play called R.U.R., which is all about um, a man who creates robots to help out, and they end up becoming uh, sentient beings and, and taking over and destroying mankind. And this is like 1920. This is even before Metropolis. So robots were in the mind, and they knew what they wanted them to look like. But they made the big splash. Robots made their big splash in the cinema through this movie. Right. Oh, Cosmos. boy, did they. Yeah. And yeah. all of a sudden, robots were kind of characterized and and cliched and also just identified as an alter kind of person all through the robot image in this movie, which is absolutely spectacular. Um, and this is why I wanted to come into that part of the story. There is one of the other main characters is a, a scientist with the unlikely name of Rotvang. <laughs> and Rotvang lives in this big, ancient, strange, ancient house that was obviously the house of an enchanter or sorcerer or something because in his main workroom he has a large uh, upside-down pentagram on the wall. And um, it turns out that Freder's mother and Rotvang were once lovers and Freder's father stole her away and she died giving birth to Freder. So Rotvang has carried this hatred with Grudge. him for years. Yeah. And in a part of the film, which unfortunately is missing, the father, Jo Frederson, uncovers this huge monument that Rodvang has built to the woman whose name is Hell, H-E-L, Hell. Which is not the same connotation as it has right. in English, yeah. And um, so basically, you know, he's Rodvang is just upset and just incredibly upset about her dying still. And, and Frederson tells him, you know, get over it. She's dead. I lost her. You lost her. Let's get over it. He says, no, I haven't lost her. I made a new one. And he unveils this robot, which is a very feminine-looking robot. And, uh, which, which, if you've ever seen Star Wars, you'll know that... <laughs> yeah, that it was basically... A lot of influence from yeah. C-3PO. C-3PO is... This, it was, this is like C-3PO's grandmother, basically. Yeah. It is, and it's basically the same, other than this has, you know... Um, has breasts. Breasts, and whereas C-3PO is a male model, but it, it really is striking. And, I mean, you didn't tell me that when you lent me the movie, mm -hmm. and I watched it. And, I mean, think about I that, didn't have to be told that it's so many, exact. There's so many images that smack of this robot. You can think of uh, Ultraman, the Japanese... Uh, yeah, very much. Fighter, uh, the Rocketeer, um, so much industrial style in movies as far as mechanical people. or They've all been influenced by this image of a robot in Metropolis. It's everywhere in movies. Well, and what is really interesting is that Brigitte Helm, who plays the young girl, Maria, her name's Maria, uh, also plays the robot in the suit. In the suit is, is Brigitte Helm playing the robot. And then later on, as the story progresses, get back to the story, I guess, uh, the, the head of the Frederson, the, the man of Metropolis, uh, gets Rotvang, tells him, I want you to make the robot look like this girl. Because uh, um, Rotvang has told him that's the next part of the process. He can make the robot look like anyone he wants to. And, and, and Frederson's idea is to use the girl because he finds out that she is telling the workers that, you know, there is going to be a mediator. There's going to be someone who is going to relieve them from this this horrible lifestyle that it's they like have. It's like a Christ kind of yeah. element in this picture. Because this is the the whole point of the movie, basically. And it even starts out with this in the 
the newest version, the, the restored version, which we'll talk about, an epigram that says the, the heart must be the mediator between the head and the hands. Of course, the head being the people in the clouds, the hands being the workers. So, uh, so Fredersen wants to nip this in the bud. So Rotwein kidnaps Maria and through this absolutely just jaw-dropping sequence, turns her, turns the robot into a, a, a sort of a sim- simulacrum of, uh, <laughs> of Maria and nice. sends her into the city. And they register her image with her pale eyes in yeah. this scene. They use her pale eyes, which are almost Probably in, very bright undecipherable. Blue. You can't see them on black and white film, but they, they had to work at lighting her, which they do very, very nicely in 1926, which is a lot of light. Um, when you they they she is making this transformation, they use her pale eyes as what brings you, you know, into that woman's personality and out of that woman's personality and back into that woman's personality. Well, and the thing that's great, and this is a real uh, nod to to Brigitte Helm's talent as an actress, and what would have brought her even more fame had she been allowed. Uh, when she is playing the robot as Maria, she slinks from side to side, and she has this sort of wicked smirk on her face. And then you know, her, her head begins to jerk in sort of very robotic moves. And, it, and one person who was so taken by her performance in this film was the director James Whale, who when he was casting for Bride of Frankenstein, wanted Miss Helm to play the monster's mate because of this. Oh, but, and when, uh, you watch, yeah. when you watch the creation sequence in Bride of Frankenstein, which, you know, go back to your uh, filmically perfect <laughs> film guide, and it's in there. You can listen to us yammer mm-hmm. about it. Uh, you know, there, that is not an accident the way that lab mm-hmm. looks and the way she is way transformed she and that yeah. lighting that goes up around her. In fact, I don't think it's even I – like, I, think, I think it's really good, but I don't think it's as, as great as Metropolis. That scene is amazing. Yeah, it well, is. Well, the problem, the reason that, that Miss Helm did not get to be in Bride of Frankenstein was that being 1935, uh, the, the ministries, the, the Third Reich and, and the Fuhrer, uh, would not let her leave the country <laughs> for fear that she would not come back. Now, ironically, her career only lasted about one more year, and she retired from films by 1936. So it really didn't make any difference that Oh, well, maybe that was why, though. Maybe it Because, it, you know, there was a ministry of film, as you were saying, right. earlier after that. So, yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the robot, as Maria, begins to wreak havoc both above and below ground. And, uh, and basically chaos ensues, and, and, and the city is destroyed. I mean, she manages to, to – they turn off the machines. The, the water begins pouring in because the machines aren't running to keep the water from underground under control. And uh, the workers are told, you know, this is who did this to you. And they capture the robot, who they think is Maria. They burn it at the stake. Classic and, uh, Joan of Arc stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then Rotvang, who now realizes that they're going to come after him when they find out what has happened, kidnaps the real Maria and is going to get rid of her, takes her to the top of this old cathedral and is going to throw her off, and that's when the young man shows up, Frederson shows oh, up. Spoiler to alert. Oh. oh, boy. You mean... It's Bud. She <laughs> doesn't get thrown <laughs> off? No, she almost... Oh. She gets... Well, you just heard it. <laughs> <laughs> no, Frater, they manage to overcome Rotvang, and they throw him off the cathedral. <laughs> and uh, Freder and Maria are, are happy to spend the rest of their days together. And they fulfill it at the end by bringing the heart, by Freder being the heart and bringing the head and the hands 
together. Beautiful. We're talking about Metropolis, a 1926 black and white silent film uh, that came out of Germany and is absolutely astonishing. It's a cinema in masterpiece. In so many ways. It is. Um, other than talking, I do want to get to talking about that creation scene because, George, you know an amazing amount about the, the, the backstory of the making, but also um, this movie since it originally came out sort of traveled the world in each maybe culture or, or, or state entity like this is again what we talked it. about yeah you know what you want to remember is this is when the power of cinema was at it was reaching a, a new heights it was able to communicate to people through visual images there was no language to slow this picture down remember this is a german film but it influenced the world because it had such striking imagery and the storytelling, the narrative was all done through juxtapositions of images. When you watch this film, you're going to see some just groundbreaking effects in this movie as far as what they were doing. George will tell you if we got time, this technical, the technical aspects, but you're going to see this director designing things with lots of human form and human bodies, almost just images. There's some, incredible surrealistic images of eyeballs and humans and he manages to put this all together in this almost uh just a brilliant painting black and white painting that's what it looks like more than anything uh, it's a painting only it moves with this this uh, like somebody laying down their paint with a brush it really really does every time i see this movie when we were younger when we were in college the the real good prints weren't around of this picture and and now, now you've got this great fortune of seeing this movie as close as probably how Fritz Long wanted you to see it. And it is so sharp and black and crisp and clean. And you see all these images going together. You see everything, including we saw something tonight that we had never seen before. We saw an electrical cord uh, being used to light a candle that I'm sure you weren't supposed to notice. <laughs> right. We noticed that tonight just reviewing I've never it. seen that before. Um, she was walking along holding it, and you can see that she's trailing a light to illuminate instead of... It took a lot of light back then to expose film. Um, Not lights today, yeah. You'll see these huge, monstrous motifs of buildings, and then they're almost like big stages, and the people all work in the middle, and you say, how in the heck did they do it? Nowadays, they digitize it, but there was this... How can you explain that, George? How they did that with that um, prism? One of the amazing processes that I don't know if it was developed for uh, for Metropolis, but it was used quite extensively, is a process called the Schuftan process. It was invented by a, a German um, uh, film guy, uh, Eugene <laughs> Schuftan. Like you, you're yeah, a film guy. That's it. And, <laughs> hey, and basically he's related. <laughs> the, way, the way the Schuftan process would work is they would build like a door frame or, or the, the part that the people would actually interact with. And then they would build a miniature scale model of the set they would have it off to the side of the the actual set, uh, like 45 degree angle from the camera. They would take a large mirror, set it at an angle in front of the camera, and then would very carefully remove the silver from the mirror, cutting out, making basically a cutout hole where the live action would come through. And when the camera looked at that mirror, it would see, and they'd have to do a lot of matching up, but they would see you know, the big set with a little hole in the middle and the live action coming through. And it's just brilliant few, yeah. is what it is. Well, there are quite a few of these Schuftan uh, process shots within this film, and they're beautiful. I mean, you, and li- until you really notice this, 
you, I, you know, been told about it, you don't even notice. But I'll tell you why the movie doing. is so solid and so good to watch. You don't notice it because you're taken up into the picture. Now, when you watch it and study it, right. as many, many, many people have done with this movie through the years, the person, Carl Frund, who was the cinematographer on this movie, went on to become even more brilliant when he came to the United States, and he started developing even more brilliant processes like the three-camera process that I Love Lucy was used uh, that they used during I Love Lucy, that which they still is used to this. It day. became a standard, three camera. a three-camera shoot three for the sitcom. Yes. That way, they could cover everything with a little bit of mathematical um, uh, precision. Or yeah, so that way overlap. they can go back and like most television shows now are shot twice in a day, and they go in there and cover it with three cameras, and then they go back and they make sure the shots are a little different on the second time. So that way, they got all sorts of angles to use, uh, and and the executives can cut it any way they want it, but. That just goes to show you that the people that are involved in Metropolis, this was only them getting started. The director, Fritz Long, is one of George's favorites. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of wonderful stuff here in the United States and a lot of very, very thoughtful stuff like Fury and... Um, Fury, You Only Live Once, uh, Moonfleet is one of my favorites. That was one of his less, lesser-known films. Um, He's always a very sadly, creative director. Very you know, creative. In Germany, he was known for these expressionist epics and, and these really wild stories, and he kind of gave that up when he came to the States feeling that the American public just would not accept some of the, the sort of bizarreness of some of his earlier films, which is a real shame. That is a shame, isn't it? Or maybe he didn't feel it. I mean, because I wonder why he wouldn't give us credit for that. Mm. We would have liked it. Well, <laughs> you know, a lot of it was, there was a lot going on in the world between 1925 when he came to the United States. You know, he was basically running away from Germany. Right. Because it, uh, one of, you know, when the film came out, although, you know, it, it did okay, they didn't make, they lost money on it, basically, because it was so expensive. There were a lot of fans of it. And one of the big fans of it was watching the film and turned to his buddy, uh, Joseph Goebbels, next to him and said, you know, we should get this man to run our film unit. And, of course, it was Adolf Hitler. And So um, he had to settle for Lenny Roffin. <laughs> well, sure enough. Lenny I mean, sure enough. How do you enough, say her name, Roffin? Reifenstahl. Yeah, right. Uh, so he had in, to settle for her. Because she was 30s, a good-looking chick, too, man. In the 30s, when, after he did the, the Testament of Dr. Mabuza, which was banned by the Nazi government, uh, you know, Goebbels did call him in and tell him that they wanted him to head the, the, the film unit, and that night he left Berlin not to return until the late 50s, early 60s. Um, ironically, his wife, uh, Thea von Harbu, who wrote the script of Metropolis and a lot of his other movies, uh, stayed back and, and became a Nazi filmmaker. Uh, uh -huh. She worked for Lenny? Ruff no, no, she did not. No. That's the most famous Third Reich filmmaker, of course. But th there's a whole bunch of those guys that just beat it out of Dodge, you know, when, when Adolf got in power. And yeah, yeah their, their loss was our gain because we got Billy Wilder and Ernst Lubitsch. A lot of great filmmakers come out of that studio, man. And then it, the, the whole industry, because it became ministryized, yeah. um, it really crumbled after that. I mean, it, After it, the it, war, there was very little left of UFA, I think, it, it, and eventually it just kind of petered that's out. That's a shame. Well, this is creative, just creative supersonic speed guys who were making all this like i said before this was at the height of the silent movie when this universal language was being developed so that everybody all over the world was understanding and if anybody wants to argue with it, that hey watch this film see how much of this influence watch time machine you'll see stuff in time machine that looks like this uh now, of course the the sad thing is that when the film came to the united states paramount who released it in, the, in this country couldn't leave it alone yep 
cut a good hour, probably an hour out of it. There's huge chunks that are gone forever. Isn't They're that gone right? forever. Yes, forever. But that they just recently cut. restored it, and I was at a Film Forum in New York City, and they said longer than ever before. How many movies <laughs> publicized their <laughs> the new version of Metropolis longer now even than longer. now the even longer. <laughs> but not only that, but they had a, they hired an American a playwright, Channing Pollock, to basically rewrite and simplify the story, basically like we do now, dumbing it down for the Americans and turning it into basically a Frankenstein story. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about Metropolis in 1927, Fritz Lang directed and uh, had uh, – we didn't even get to talk to – maybe should, we can talk about it just quickly, that transfer with the neon, the, the transformation scene. Just, uh, it really yeah, the, is beautiful. The, the scene where the robot is transformed into Maria is just miraculous. I mean, the first time I saw it, I was like in eighth grade. I bought a Super 8 print of Metropolis, which looked terrible. George has had so five wonderful. versions of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but when the robot Super is transformed, eight. when the robot is transformed, <laughs> these these rings come down around the robot and move up and down over it. Lighted rings, Lighted rings, even. And they basically they, they created this, this neat set of neon rings that could be moved on you know pulleys. And and doing sort of a multiple you know back winding uh, effect, they could you know create this multi layered effect. It's really Just hard Just quickly, to we'll say that you backwinding and you can expose the same negative twice if yeah. you're careful. There so just incredible this is techniques. Precision work. There, yeah. yeah, there are some times <laughs> they they were backwinding and doing like 20 exposures on a single piece of film. Or yeah, more, this maybe. is precision work. Yeah. You know, the, one of the beautiful things about this movie, in in the past, you couldn't appreciate it was, you know, like we said before, most silent movies look like silent movies because of the stupid herky-jerky movement that everybody thought was attributed to Super 8 movies. But this movie is a hand-cranked movie, and you're going to watch some of the smoothest cinematography camera operation ever known in the history of cinema because they had the option of undercranking and overcranking at the same time. They could speed up the action, and they could slow it down with a pan, with a simple pan. These guys were so adept at what they were doing. You watch some of the scenes, the fight scenes. They start in almost slow motion and and really ramp up to this ultimate high-speed work where they're throwing fists and everything. That's, of course, their undercrank. They're slowly... The camera now. Yeah. And ah. then they speed it up, you know... Uh, for the opposite effect. Now, these guys had that technique down. They were able to do this, and this was under direction, no doubt, yeah. I think, at this time, by either Carl Friend or else Fritz Long, yeah. because they were trying to get an effect yeah. uh, in this movie. You're never going to see that ever again because all cameras run at one speed now unless they're doing an effect, of Right, course. and it's interesting that even though at this time, I mean, and actually way back earlier, uh, motors were available for cameras, electric motors, uh, but most of the cameramen sort of eschewed the electric motor and just because they got really good at cranking. They had formulas. They knew exactly how many cranks per minute or per second they had to maintain to keep a nice. They were motion. artists. Yeah. Really, I was thinking of that as you were describing. It's artists. a whole. It's like a form of dance or something. That's all about timing and well. Since boys knew how to like uh, get the appropriate speed out of a car or truck, you know, for the appropriate pratfall around the turn. Those mm -hmm. guys were the same kind of artists. But this is the time where there was nothing stopping silent movies. They were gonna take over the world, man, and give us <laughs> a, the art form that we. And then, of course, it call all stopped with. Al Jules. Uh, we need to take a look at the rules. Uh, it creates the world without question. Yep. Oh, nothing, yeah. Nothing. 
<laughs> Nothing. Nothing. No, no chink in that armor. It oh. sustains it. Although I have to say, I didn't like that lead actor. Not one iota. And boy, have we heard about yeah, it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, he almost ruined it for fighting. me. But you know, everybody else I thought really did a good job. But there's something he was just too melodramatic, too over the top. But he does wear a lot of pancake makeup. He I do notice that. A lot of pancakes. She doesn't like the way he throws his arms around <laughs> and <laughs> rolls his eyes. Yeah. Certainly, because um, we're talking about it almost 80 years later. In fact, I guess it's more than 80 years later. Uh, absolutely, Rule 3 is uh, is a dead cinch on that. Get a good copy of this thing, and that guy looks like he's just yesterday. We yeah, should almost take a whole other show and do this, because I'd also like to talk about how in the world it was that portions of this got lost and that don't exist anymore. It's just uh, something that just is so sad to me. It's real, right. well, real sad. Well, the nice thing is, unlike so many of our films that no longer exist or are in very badly butchered versions, uh, the... Uh, the uh, German archives have restored this film, and it is now available. You can get it on DVD, with even with the original music score that was written for it. Oh, wow. But uh, still parts missing. I mean, still that can't missing. be changed. There, you know, there are titles in there where parts are missing. Uh, it does not detract from the film. It don't, looks don't amazing. Rush, don't rush through it. Sit down and enjoy it. You know, you can. There's, there's uh, no dialogue. Just sit there and just eat it up. You know, yeah. don't let anybody push you Glistening into like watching it in a certain black and white time. photography is amazing. Check us online. The film guys are always open, 24 hours a day at uh, perfectmovie.net. Drop them a line. Film guys at perfectmovie.net. J. Todd Anderson, thank you. Oh yeah, you betcha. And George Willimon, see you next time. Good night. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.